1: Well, hi there, I'm Joe Kroler, and it is my distinct pleasure to uh, introduce my guest today, which is uh, Robert McCrum, and Robert has a long career as an editorial director and then chief um, uh, editor of uh, Faber and Faber, literary editor, and then associate editor of The Observer, uh, writer of dozens of books, and now this one, which we'll talk about today, uh, Shakespearean on life and language in times of disruption. And Robert, I have one really great question for you to start this off.
2: Sure, sure. It's a, by the way, it's a pleasure pleasure to be on, on your podcast. And thank you so much for uh, making thank this happen. Thank you. What drove you to Bardology? I think it was a series of happy accidents, really. Um, and, and I didn't. Th- I'm not sure I'm... Bardology implies that I'm obsessed with the characters, which isn't really the case. I'm not obsessed by his character or his, or his personality, really. Um, but I, 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 th- I think you know, I like every, everyone in or many many English schoolboys. I, 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 performed in Shakespeare at school. I was in King Lear. I was in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. But it wasn't, and and, I, you know, and Shakespeare is part of, the, as it were, the, the, the wallpaper of our culture. Um, but it wasn't until. I was really in my 40s that Shakespeare clicked for me and that, that I was recovering from a very serious illness I had a stroke when I was like, 42 and I was very badly paralyzed pretty much all over apart from my right side and all that worked was my right arm and hand and leg um, and so I could hold I could lie in bed pretty much immobilised, and the only things I could could hold in one hand because the left my left side was not working now, now, it's now working fine, but it wasn't then. Uh, were play scripts, so I would lie in bed and read Shakespeare plays, and uh, I'd read, you know, f- favourite passages, and, and, then, and then I would discover new Shakespeare plays which I hadn't read before, and then one thing led to another, and then when I, re- then, I but then when I recovered fully, I would go and see plays with some friends who are described in the book as the Shakespeare Club, which when I say happy accident that was also a group of of my um, college um, associates who formed this group very informally and kind of casually uh, where we just went to see if new productions of Shakespeare which you can do in London any day of the week there's always a new new production there's a new Macbeth at the moment just opened so at any, any one time there'd be seven or eight of us going off to see a new Shakespeare play and then we would discuss it and talk about it and, and then one thing le- led to another and then this book actually happened I was inspired to do it in America when I was over in New York in June of 2017, shortly after the Trump presidency began. And there was a production of Shakespeare in the Park, Julius Caesar, in the Delacorte Theatre. And I went along with my now friend and um, ally, James Shapiro, Jim Shapiro, the the great Shakespeare scholar. And he took me along to see this show. Um, And it was Julius Caesar. And we sat in the front row and the, the, Oscar Eustace, the, the director of the show, great director, had cast Shakespeare as Trump. So he was uh, in a blonde wig, red tie, white shirt. And every night, every night in the, the production caused quite a stir, actually, uh, because every night in the middle, he was assassinated very bloodily on stage in front of 3000 New Yorkers. And. Um, and this did not go down well on the, on the right, and amongst Trump supporters, and there was a, quite a stink led by Fox News, of course. And halfway through this show, we both turned to each other and said, isn't it extraordinary this play, which is more than 400 years old, is speaking to this audience as though for the first time? And, uh, and something click, clicked in my head, and, and I said, I, want to, I said to myself, I want to explore why it is that Shakespeare is so modern. Why he seems why he can seem like a contemporary even though it was 400 years old and he's an Elizabethan Englishman he speaks to any audience and the book is really a that's the, the latest accident uh, the book is really a, an examination of that question
1: well that that is um, an excellent uh, example for me uh, mostly because I'm a historian and uh, and and I noted that you're you're watching Caesar and um, and then we dress Caesar up like Trump and it's like, my God, history is repeating itself here. Um, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm reading um, in your book, you know, I, I get to a point where you're talking about that Shakespeare as a writer really began with history as a, it, for his plays. Uh, Richard III, Henry VI, King John. Um, um, but what I find interesting is when he writes this history in play form, he inserts the common folks. Uh, you know, uh, it's a couple of quotes. Let's kill all the lawyers uh, or it was never a merry world in England since gentlemen came up. Uh, I, I wonder if you could speak to that.
2: Well, I, no, I, I think that it's a very good point because it, it, it is the key to his, you know, he he was always putting his plays on in the playhouse in front of ordinary people. The, play, the playhouse in, in Elizabethan times it was it was the movie house. It was Hollywood. It was it was the inter, it was the it was the only entertainment in town, and everyone went. And in London, something like fifteen percent estimates, of course, um, London was a city in those days of, of, of probably two or three million, not very many, and fifteen percent it has been calculated thereabouts would go to the playhouse on a very regular basis, as I say, like like going to see the movies. And so, and if you may have been, have you been to the, the Globe in London, the Globe Theatre in London? I have, yes. You have. So you know, you an open air theatre with an apron stage surrounded by the, 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 the audience in the pit, as it's called. Um, and you will remember from your visit there how the audience surrounds the the car. The car is in the middle of the audience, and Shakespeare, I think, never forgot, never underestimated the importance of appealing to the audience in front of him. Uh, in in live, it's, in a, in a, it's it's not recorded. It's completely live. It's happening in the moment. And the joy of Shakespeare, I think, is that it always happens in the moment. And I think,
1: yeah, I think you called it I th- raucous, body, and and extremely popular. So um, I I was wondering how that space, the Globe Theatre, directed Shakespeare's writings?
2: Well, I I think, um, first of all, he has in mind that he wants to grab the audience's attention from the beginning. There's no mucking around here. There's no preamble. There might be a prologue, but once you've got past the prologue, say the prologue at the beginning of Romeo and um, Juliet, there'll be a fight on stage. In the case of Macbeth, you, the, 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 well the curtain didn't go there was no curtain they would start and there would be three witches when shall we, we three meet again in thunder, lightning or in rain so <clears> that's <throat> a very, very, very bold uh, theatrical manoeuvre having three witches in an age which believed in witchcraft on stage in front of the audience or in the case of Hamlet a ghost <clears throat> he never flinched from grabbing the audience by the scruff of the neck and holding onto them all the way through as long as you know he, he wanted to, to have their attention and it was, as I said, as you quoted, it's bored, it's raucous, it's, it's if, you've, if you've seen the Shakespeare play, I think they, you'll know it's quite, it's quite sort of rough and ready in many respects. <laughs> it's not like a theatre with a with a, with a, a proscenium arch and, and, the, and the, the, the lights going down and the curtain coming, all that kind of thing. It's very open, very democratic. Uh, and I think the key to Shakespeare is that he grew up in a small country town far from the city, and he grew up... In, in a community and as it were an open air country community and he never underestimated or patronized his audience.
1: I love this one quote uh, speaking to that because um, he's Stratford on Avon that um, the language in his plays was basically uh, a mashup of Stratford and Shoreditch uh, bling versus barnyard kind of thing uh, and I, and, and maybe that's why uh, we get this, um, st- this uh, common culture, this common man and woman in, in a mix of high and low culture. Uh, and, and you said this is the stirring of a mass society about him. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. The
2: stirring of a what society?
1: A, a mass society, a mass, oh, mass culture consumption. Yes,
2: well, well it, I, you know, it is the first time... Uh, in England, I don't know elsewhere, but certainly in England, it's the first time the common people were going to were going to see um, this kind of entertainment. Now, it's obviously it it, it is it was for them popular ent- entertainment. also, as we na- now know, in many cases, high art. And you know, he he would mix the entertainment of, of the ghosts and the witches with wonderful speeches. And he also, in the case of Hamlet affected what you might call a theatrical revolution, which was the idea of self-consciousness, the, self, the self-conscious actor expressing his opinion, in this case, his opinions, um, directly to the audience. So when Hamlet, in Hamlet, the beginning of Hamlet, steps to the front of the stage and speaks to the audience about his, his anxieties, his doubts and fears about committing suicide, it, famous line, to be or not to be—that is the question. That was a revolution; that has never happened before. The actor taking the audience into his confidence to express his self-conscious anxieties about himself.
1: Would you, would you think and that that would be a, a Stratford thing uh, or a London thing?
2: I think it's probably more of a London. I mean, I think it was—it was something which—and Shakespeare took ten years to get to get to get to the point where Hamlet walks to the front of the stage and, and gives that speech. Took ten years of theatrical development, and I think the other point to make about him, uh, as well as being a country boy, I, I don't want to say, think he's making him sound like a, a rustic yokel, but he was from the, from the pro- provinces. Um, he worked with a group of actors called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. They ended up, ended up being called the King's Men because they, they, their, their patron became king, and. They were like, you know, they were like a theatrical trip. They, they were like Monty Python, one of the more, they were, in a sense. They were, they worked together, they performed together. He wrote the plays, they performed them, and everything evolved in the community of the theatrical group. It's very, so again, very democratic. And I think he was somebody who would used, used to. They would say, "Come on, Will, we want, we need, we need a speech here, or, or we need something." And they, they would, they, as it were, workshop the plays in performance, and so they would evolve as a kind of collaboration between the actors and Shakespeare, and, and, and indeed the audience. Um,
1: that's, um, thank you. Um, let me switch gears here for a second. You mentioned um, Shakespeare goes from the country to London, 1590 somewhere in there. And, and London at that time is a mix of, 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 of Puritans and uh, a lot of danger. You described his arrival at Bishop's Gate Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm and I'm wondering uh, how
2: that arrival
1: kind of shaped Shakespeare.
2: Well, I think you know to come to London from a, a market town like Stratford would have been a, a, an extraordinary experience. I mean, the, and the, the, what 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 we, what we what we we still call the City of London, which is the, the medieval city in the middle of London, it's now the financial district. Was a it's a tiny area, it's um you could walk across it in five minutes, and it was teeming with with many different nationalities, many different kinds of people. had several playhouses cheek by jowl. There were four or five, all really close together, and it was it bordered the Thames, which was a, a thoroughfare. It was a way of traveling about the place. Uh, it was very exciting, it was dangerous. There was, lot, there was a lot. There were fights. There was plague. There was um, street disturbances, and there were, and there were, and there was live performance, live entertainment. All so it was very, it was very vivid. I think, and to a young boy who'd been used to, as I say, the market town, which is very peaceful, um, it would have been an extraordinary experience.
1: I keep getting this uh, dichotomy between uh, in your book, you you point out that the streets of London at that time uh, is quite dangerous, uh, punch ups sword fights, stabbings, uh, roguish vocabulary. Uh, but then you had the opposite. You had Puritans roaming about trying to keep a lid on it all. Um, yeah, I just keep trying to imagine Shakespeare drinking that all in. Mm, mm.
2: Well, you, could, you if you want to see where, where he lived, it's, it is still possible. There, there's a church in Bishopsgate, which is a neighborhood in the city, called course, St Helen's Church. It's open to the public. You can walk in there, and when you walk in there, it's like stepping back into the into the into the fifteenth century. It's completely unchanged, and you can imagine him being there. Um, and he he had lodgings very nearby. There's now it's now a big financials. Um, there's a there's a there's a bank where he where his house was. But a bank but in London? No. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: okay, so he arrives. He starts writing. Um, He's going to meet uh, other playwrights: uh, Watson, Peele, Kid, Nash, That's right. sure, 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 Green, yep, yep. Marlowe. Um, it's. I, I keep looking at this, and I'm going competition. Um, that, mm, mm. How did that? Did that drive Will Shakespeare? Did he have something other driving him, other than the Look, competition? Uh,
2: I think. I think. I think all writers are competitive, You know. So one one writer will do one thing, and others will, will then be inspired to compete with that. That happens all the time. And his great rival and competitor, we don't, we 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 can never put them in the room together. We never know whether whether they actually spoke. I think they must have done because they worked for the same theatre group. It was Christopher Marlowe and Will and Will and Kit were great. I think they they weren't great friends, but they certainly knew each other, and they must have met. And they must have talked, and they 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 would spar off each other. So Marlowe would write Edward II. Shakespeare would write Richard II. Marlowe would write Jew of Malta. Shakespeare would write The Merchant of Venice. Um, They echo and and they follow each other. Um, So so it's it's competitive. I think it was a a friendly... With some of the other playwrights, it became quite bitter. So Ben Johnson and Shakespeare were not great friends. No one really liked Ben Johnson. Um, He was very difficult, difficult to work with. Very prickly, um, uh, but it, it was it, it was exceedingly, and they're they all very young. They're all in their twenties and thirties. And by the time Shakespeare is forty, this is this is the extraordinary thing. By the time he was forty, all his younger contemporaries—they're all dead. They would either died from plague or fighting or one thing or various kinds of illness. And he was, you know, he was he stood he stood alone, and he he'd survived. Um, but there were about fifteen of them, and. Many of them had, had collaborated. in his early early years. They did collaborate together.
1: Well, I'm I'm looking at that uh, that word that you just brought up, plague. Um, you make mention of it a couple of times in a couple of places in the book, and uh, basically from 1592 to 1603, London's going to lose a, about a quarter of its population. I mean, death is just everywhere. This had to have sunk in on on Will
2: Shakespeare. Mm. And, you know, while, while I was finishing this book, uh, of course, we had our own version of the, book, the plague with COVID. But, and, and a number of people wanted to draw parallels between then and now. But I, I'm afraid to say that our plague is nothing to, uh, compared to the bubonic. The bubonic plague was terrifying. If you got one of the symptoms, you know, the, the, if you got a pustule on your, on, your, on your arm or your hand, you knew that within 24 hours, not, not more, you would die the most horrible excruciating death it was it was a dreadful way to go and it and it it, it, it as you rightly say it it decimated the population and the extraordinary thing is given how much pl- plague there was during his early about roughly half his first decade of working in London was affected by plague. It's surprising how few references. They, I think people just took, took the play for granted. There are surprisingly few references to it. Um, it was. It was. It was just. It was, a, it was just part of the condition of being in London. I think.
1: Um, I'm going to thank you. I'm going to shift uh, the story here just a little bit because, as as a historian, whenever I get to talk about England during Will Shakespeare's time, when I get to talk about Queen Elizabeth, when I get to talk about the. the James the first. Um, I often take a look at, well, Shakespeare's and and his gender, um, and his role in writing women, women roles. And I'm looking at his treatment, uh, well, the merry wives of Windsor, uh, Windsor taming of the shrew, uh, Lady Macbeth, she's just so dominant in that play. Um, and then of course, there's queen Elizabeth's treatment of the Earl of Essex, um, which later on, and, and I'm wondering if if sh- if you think as I think this that Shakespeare held women in a much higher esteem than English culture at that time allowed, and I'm wondering if if you think that's true or not.
2: Well, I certainly think. I mean, what well, you've got well, you've got to recognize that uh, not all not all your listeners will, will will remember this, but but women on the stage in Elizabethan England were played by boys. Women didn't appear on stage. Uh, if you remember the, the play, the film Shakespeare in Love, the, the part of it turns on the revelation that Viola, Viola de Lesseps, uh, is actually, she's she's pretending to be a boy in order to get on stage. Um, women didn't didn't play roles. Um, and it's clear that Shakespeare had, had was able to draw on three or four very talented boy actors to play these women's parts. No, no, and I think the thing about Shakespeare is he's got tremendous. And this is one of his great characters. One of the reasons why he appeals to us so strongly: tremendous humanity, uh, which which shows itself again and again. I mean, let's just—you mentioned Lady Macbeth, um, who is a dark, psychotic. You know, she's an evil woman, but she's also portrayed with tremendous sympathy, and so that when in the end she goes mad and is uh, sleepwalking and macbeth is has been reduced to having to his his whole his whole assault on power has crumbled in his hands and he's he's facing the the ruin of his, of his uh, plans it's very, that that part of the play is a very moving moment to, and he, and he, make, he makes the famous speech tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow peeps in his petty pace from day to day uh, that, that's a speech of a psychopath and killer and tyrant who is strangely human. And Lady Macbeth also, although she said she wants to unsex herself in front of the audience, is also strangely human. And we, and his great genius was to get inside the hearts and minds of, as it were, dreadful people.
1: <laughs> um, you brought up a point that I think is important here, that um, the role of women were played by boys or or men.
2: Well, um, boys, boys, teenage boys. boys. Uh,
1: and, and I'm wondering, um, you mentioned in a couple of places uh, Shakespeare's alleged bisexuality, and I'm wondering, is this really important for us to know?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, my feeling about about all of these questions about the relationship between the man and, and, and his work uh, the life and the art so to speak is that if he writes a bunch of sonnets which he did write which have which express homosexual heterosexual and bisexual you know all kinds of love from various different points of view we have to pay attention to that whether that's him or, or whether it's just his, his imagination who knows we, we just don't know but he he's he's playing with this, and I think we have we have to respond to that. It, so it does matter because you know it's Shakespeare, and um, it, these are his words. But it's 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 but it's it, it is a bit of a you can go down, go down go down that rabbit hole, and there are plenty of people who say he was gay. There are others who say he was bisexual. You know, he there are different ways of, of reading this, um, and who you know who knows?
1: I, I think maybe it's just a kind of a story with people who are thespians or in theater production, uh, maybe that's just a strand, that uh, a continuity from those times to now, uh, I suppose. Uh, I, I want to get to a point where uh, we get to the coronation of James the First,
2: Right, yeah. Um, because... Which is, if I may interrupt, yes. uh, it's very easy, so let's not lose sight of the coronation of James the First, but let's just also say that Shakespeare's career falls in, it's a, it's a game of two halves. The 1590s, nineties, first the first half, and the 1600s, the second half. And the first half, as you rightly pointed out earlier on, was his patron was Elizabeth I, this titanic figure. And the second half, his patron was James I, also a very powerful figure in many ways, but quite but Scottish. And so those two halves are... Uh, side by side and with the one follows the other. But so the coronation of James comes as a kind of halfway point in his career. Very interestingly.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'm just so fascinated by this uh, because again, we're again, very different monarch from a very different place. Uh, and I'm kind of hoping you can set the scene for me because there's two plays that come right after James, the first takes the throne and, the first of which is King Lear, and the other one is, I think, even more uh, dangerous, which is Macbeth. But I really, really want to talk about King Lear because this is an old king going mad and he has three daughters. Mm -hmm. daughters, Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, But let's start, can I start with Macbeth? If you want to understand Shakespeare's creative audacity, Macbeth is the place to start. Absolutely, Um, yes. um, Just imagine... Um, his patron, the Queen, Queenlet, has died, and there's a new king who speaks Scottish, hard to understand for a, for a Londoner, who's come down from, from Edinburgh from the north. He's arrived in, in Hampton Hampton Court. He's set up his his new court. No one knows a thing about him, uh, but he's the, he is the the, the the Lord Chamberlain's men. He's their he's their new patron, and he's so, he's so pleased to be the new patron. He he, call, he they they're renamed. They're called the King's Men. They're kitted out in scarlet livery, very special, and, and the, the, they become part of the royal court. And it falls to them to produce ent- entertainment um, uh, for the new king. And so and this, is, this is where the extraordinary audacity of Shakespeare comes into play. So what does Shakespeare do? He, he, he finds a Scottish... So first of all, he's going to find a Scottish story for the new king. But he doesn't know much about the king. All he knows is... In fact, no one knows much about James, but they know that he has a traumatic fear of assassination. His mother had been killed by, was executed by, uh, by Queen Elizabeth, and he, he'd witnessed uh, assaults on, on, his, on his, his mother and um, m- bloody murders in her household. So he's terrified of assassination. He's obsessed as a new king of, of, what, of the country that became Britain, with the unity of the kingdom, and thirdly, the, the only other thing that anyone, anyone knew, might, n- really knew about James was he was also obsessed with witches. I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, so and he, and, and the, the other thing that w- anyone knew about James was he'd written a, uh, he wrote he'd written a pamphlet called Demon- Demonology, which was a pamphlet about witchcraft. So what does Shakespeare do? He he, he writes a play in which a king is horribly assassinated, which explores the division of the kingdom and which has witchcraft all the way through it I mean it's the most outrageous um challenge to, to a new to, to, to a new audience imaginable of, co- of course the king um the king loved it he was he laughed he loved to be um he, to be entertained he'd lapped it up and and uh, they remained the King's men remained popular with him for the rest of Shakespeare's working life but I, I think it's very important to see that he would always go to the point of maximum jeopardy in his work, um, vis-à-vis the audience, he was not afraid to take a very big risk. Um, but moving on to King Lear, um, which Lear is is one of the great pinnacles of, I think, of, of um, English theatre. Samuel Johnson said that he was the, the great lexicographer. said that it was a play you couldn't couldn't be performed; it could only be read. It was un- it was just too grand, too magnificent, too too bleak. Be put on stage. I mean, I think that's not true. Actually, you can, I've seen many great productions of Lear, um, but it's a very difficult play. It's a very dark play, and it's. Well, going back to where we began, we're talking about about his his modern spirit. Parts of it could have been written by Samuel Beckett.
1: I'm, on, I, I, I'm sorry, I suddenly got an image of you lying in bed, recovering, reading King Lear.
2: <laughs> King Lear. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I, I, it's got some marvelous poetry. I mean, I, 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 I was actually in it when I was—I played Gloucester when I was at school. Um, at one point, I knew the whole play by heart because you do. If you're in a, if you're in a, in a show, I mean, I've got quite a good memory, and you, you just—I you, could, I could, I could—I could, I used to, I can't anymore. I've lost it, but I could recite chunks of it um, from memory. Um, and some of the poetry in Lear is very, very beautiful, or, or very, very moving. Because um, although the old king is mad as a hatter, um, he, it's, his madness is tragic. And it's it's going back to the present, You know, we're, we're, uh, as as the population ages, we're very concerned about dementia and those kind of issues. And there's something which is very, in some ways, I don't think Shakespeare is what you might call a topical playwright, but he does address many of the great themes of everyday, everyday life. So uh,
1: I'm looking at this gunpowder plot in 1605, where you know, the famous Guy Fawkes and... Um...
2: Yeah. Uh, it's worth, wrote, w- sorry, sorry, it's worth worth just saying, it's a plot which never happened. I mean, <laughs> this is true, know, absolutely it's, true. It's a great it's a great threat to the English state which never happened, and yeah, but, it's it's a, it's a classic English non event.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but because of that event that didn't happen, we get what you write: England fell into conspiracy theory. Well, absolutely. And, that is so twenty first century right now. Oh,
2: oh sure, no, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. No, and, and they they hunted down the the, the plotters, and the, hunted them down and then ex- executed them in the most horrible way. Um, no, it was a, it was a, it, if it had happened, if the if the gunpowder had gone off, the court would have been blown sky high um, in one in one conflagration. It would have destroyed the entire infrastructure in one with with, with the strike of one match. But anyway, it didn't happen, and so there we are. Um, but he refers to he refers to thought in Lear. He refers to thought executing fires. It's a famous speech, and, and the thought executing fires of Lear, the thought executing fires of the Gunpowder Plot, and that's an example of the way in which Shakespeare never fails to. You know, he's also a mirror of, of his times, and you can, and you find these references scattered through the plays all the way through. Um, you can track his um, his engagement with everyday life
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I'm just so um, enraptured by this. Bec- I, I, I guess it's because I'm a historian mm, that mm. Um, that Shakespeare finds himself inadvertently at such personal uh, risk mm. because of the gunpowder plot, um, because of his plays. I mean, he's just playing on the fears of of the monarch, and mm, mm. I'm just beside myself with how much now, risk he, he actually was,
2: took. He would he would have been uh, at certain points he was very close to the age. And we, you mentioned earlier on the, the the rebellion of the Earl of Essex, yes. uh, which was the, which which was in a, a sort of a coup attempt against Elizabeth I. Didn't happen again, another failed plot. Um, but part of that. Um coup attempt was a production of a Shakespeare play to desi- Richard II designed to rouse up the um, the ordinary people. And at that point the Kings the, the Lord Chamberlain's men were in real jeopardy because the the, the state was not but be- was not benign towards attempts to bring it down. and they came very close to having a very rough time and they didn't. I think the queen would have intervened. she said these are foolish foolish players getting involved in it, were way over their heads. But it was a, a, would have been a very very nervous moment when they were summoned. Some of them were summoned to the Star Chamber to be interrogated by by the by the authorities, and that would have been a terrifying moment.
1: It must have been. Uh... And
2: you know, Shakespeare I, I... was uh, Shakespeare was at court. He was close to pa- in power. Power is is a is a dangerous. It's a very dangerous game, and in those days, you 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 could do, you could lose your head very easily.
1: That's why I really love the subtitle of your book, and I'm going to repeat it here: "Life and Language in Times of Disruption." And I, I think that's just wonderful. So great title. Oh,
2: thank you. Yeah, well, that was nowadays. Books have to have some. I quite like the title Shakespearean, but the publishers they want they wanted a subtitle, and that was the subtitle we came up with because it, you get more tracking on Google if you have subtitle. Yeah, I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. yes. Um, all right. So we've been spending a lot of time on his plays, and I, I want to shift over to his sonnets. Um, they're Personally, they're not as familiar to me as, as his plays, mm-hmm. um, but you do describe his use of sonnets as a way for Will Shakespeare to have some fun in a way, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a preference for his quote-unquote visible invisibility. What does that even mean? <laughs> well,
2: I think the thing about him is, you know, he hides in plain sight. He, um, he, is, he, he will always draw on his, he'll draw on his, uh, uh, you know, life, life and experience. Um, and I think his his personality is in some ways expressed through that. But at the same time, he is completely opaque. We never really know what he's thinking because he thinks, you know, he he'll present a, a point of view from so many different perspectives. We can, ne- we can never say aha he's a he's a republican aha he's a revolutionary you can read Coriolanus in lots of different ways uh, sh- we began with Julius Caesar Julius Caesar can be a play about a tarrant, can be a play a play about the dangers of 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 Republican uh, revolutionary activity there are lots of different re- readings and he's I've described elsewhere his ne- what I call his negligent ambiguity he likes to be ambiguous. he likes to be slippery doesn't want to be pinned down it's dangerous to be pinned down and he's always always quite evasive. And um, I think that's very much in character.
1: It's pretty amazing to me when I when I study English history, and which I do, by the way, uh, if you write and you publish, you put yourself in danger. That's true with Thomas Hobbes. It's true with uh, many, many writers in the past. Yeah. I'm wondering how Shakespeare has this illustrious career and is able to escape all of this.
2: Well, he he was... I mean, I think it's a mark of Elizabeth the First intelligence, and she was a formidably bright woman. Um, that she recognised he that in her court she had this this, uh, this writer of tremendous gifts, and I think he ha- he was given a kind of license. I think the were, there were, the rules didn't apply to him in the way that they applied to others, and he was allowed to get away with it. Um, and you know he he is he was but you know he was the the, the jewel in her crown. Um, uh, and if you take a play like *Midsummer Night's Dream*, there are many references to the imperial boateress, and he, and he, he refers to the queen in that in very lavish and supportive terms, he, and he never failed to flatter his audience, his queen.
1: So you think um, the queen honestly knew that William think, Shakespeare was think, uh, was this jewel?
2: I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the sonnets. The sonnets are. Shakespeare as it were Shakespeare at home they were very private they circulated privately they weren't printed until 1609 so quite late on in it. They did, he didn't ever gather them together into a single volume until quite late but and here's a clue as to how he thought about his work the sonnets were, produ- were produced in a very, very, a very lovely edition and it was clear that he took some trouble in the making of uh, the printing of that edition uh, whereas the play scripts are often very rough and ready and full of uh, errors and so forth. Uh, the sonnets are beautifully presented. And I think for him, if, you, if you'd if you asked him, are you a playwright first or a poet first, he'd say, I'm a poet who writes plays. But the poetry is the thing that really matters to him. more than I think in many ways more than the plays. But who knows?
1: Yeah. Um, so going back to Queen Elizabeth then... Um, she has a very famous event. Her former lover, Earl of Essex, is, mm. uh, is, is now executed, and she's the one that orders it. And from this, or after this, we get Hamlet. And you write that Hamlet is this different kind of theatrical hero. Um, so how so?
2: Well, he is the first Shakespeare character to put what you might call inwardness, interior thoughts, private thoughts, on stage, in front, you know, he he presents his inner musings to the audience, in the most brilliant. You know, the, the Hamlet, the first half of Hamlet has three or four great soliloquies. Oh, uh, that this 2 too solid flesh should melt, uh, to be or not to be, and uh, those kind of speeches, um, and that was that. That was a revolution that hadn't happened before. Um, and you can always tell with Shakespeare when he when he really minds about what he's what. what when, he, when he's, when he's as it were, on message, he doesn't have great big speeches. He, he has these brilliant brilliant lines in very basic English that anyone, anyone can understand. So to be or not to be, that is the question, is a very stark statement. It's designed to, to get the, 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 the audience in the pit paying attention. Uh, and there are, there are countless examples all the way through all the plays of his ability to, as it were, nail a theme in one line, I mean, I th- I'm thinking of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, when what you might call the fall of fall of Falstaff at the very end, when Falstaff comes back to London. Prince Hal has become King Henry the and Falstaff and his posse come back to London, and they think they're going to they're, they're become part of the court, and it's all going to be sided with you know ja- uh, 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 a good time for all, all concerned. Um, and they stand in the street waiting for the king to pass, and, and, and the button held their old buddy. Um, and Falstaff calls out to his old his old mate, Prince Hal, and this is, the, this is the line. King Henry V looks at, at Falstaff and says, I know thee, not old man, fall to thy prayers. I know thee, not old man. Again, plain old-fashioned English, nothing fancy. And when Shakespeare wants to Signal, as it were, a gear change or a or a, a plot change or a character change in his plays. He'll always use the simplest language. It's very, it's very and and doesn't have big speeches, although he's a master of a big speech. Um, it, it, he knows it's far more effective to have a, a one good line, which is actually something any writer can learn from. I'm
1: going to kind of follow up with. The... You mentioned the Earl of Southampton, Shakespeare's mm, patron. patron. Yeah. Um,
2: and, and Maybe lover. Who know, if, he, if he was gay, was he, who knows? We don't know. Who knows?
1: Uh, but I, I find that patronage fascinating in the sense that mm, mm. there's a number of times that the theaters are just shut down in London. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, a good chunk of his career theater is shut down. Uh, in London, and so yeah. I'm wondering how how close was he to Southampton?
2: Well, I mean, Southampton was incredibly wealthy, and he had his kind of his own, as it were, private court. He had his own estates, and he and and crucially, he had he had property away from London. So when the plague struck London and and threatened to decimate the population, Shakespeare could retire to the country and be quite safe. Um, and there are parallels with our own recent experience there he would he, go he, he got into the sticks to be to be safe and to be in, in the in the company of the Earl of Southampton um what their relationship actually was we don't know but he, he was um he was his patron and um, the sonnets were as it were the fruit of their relationship in a strange way um,
1: would it be that uh, the Earl of Southampton was one of the reasons why Shakespeare kind of was able to avoid any, any repercussions when the Earl of Essex went down.
2: Uh, maybe. It, it, it's so, you know, we, we know so, so little about the... Um, I mean, he was, the Earl of Southampton was actually imprisoned as a result of the... Well, because he was part of Essex's group. And so when Essex fell, Southampton was imprisoned for a bit and then was released. Again, I think the Queen was, you know, very... Um, Queen Elizabeth was very humane in many you ways. Know, she, 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 he, could, he could have been executed. He wasn't. Uh, similarly, the Shakespeare's players could have been put in prison. They weren't. Um, so clearly there was some kind of understanding that these were remarkable individuals who deserved a, a special treatment.
1: Well, Robert, I've been reading this book and have been just glued to it. And oh, I'm well, wondering, thank you.
2: Thank you. yeah, how long
1: did it did this book manifest itself into a creation where you were happy to put it off and, and send it to a publisher?
2: Well, I began, as I say, uh, well, in my mind, I began to th- think about writing it in uh, the summer of 2017. I didn't start to write it until 2018. And then I finished it. I'm just turning to the back. I've, I've lost track of time. The thing about uh, COVID is we've all lost track of where we are in time, haven't we? Um, I'm just turning to the back here. Final pages. I've got the dates at the very end. I've never done this before, but I just wanted to, to mark... Yes, I began it. began to write it in October 2017. So I, I saw the Julius Caesar production in June with Jim Shapiro, and I spent the summer thinking about it. I began to write it, and I, the title Shakespearean came to me very early on. And then I finished it in November 2019, just before the pandi- pa- pandemic began, and then I've got, I have a postscript where I to describe how the plague, you know, uh, there were so many parallels between then and now, but, but the thing that was missing when I was writing, there was no plague. And then when I was t- copy-editing and f- producing the final version between November 2019 and March 2020, then plague, I, I was able to put in a few references to plague into the book. Rather after the fact, but I put, I wanted to put them in just, just just to mark. So the book is a, in a way, marks a, a strange moment in um, our lives. But it, it, I think we'll always look back on this time as a kind of hallucination in some ways.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think we are living in Shakespearean times. So the, the title mm. is, is that's, quite that's that, that,
2: that's that's what I that's what I wanted to say. I mean, I think there are there are lots of similarities.
1: Um, um, did you enjoy the process? I guess is my next question. I, it,
2: it, well, um, it's a pleasure to be in his company, and I, I've one of the one of the things I've I've done when I've I've you know I speak about it at festivals, and I always challenge the audience. And I challenge you, Joe, to go home uh, when you get back to your desk, take down your Shakespeare, yeah. your your collected Shakespeare. I, I assume you've got several editions. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, take down your collected Shakespeare, open it at, at any page at random, any, any, any double page spread at random and read two pages and you will find something remarkable, a phrase, a characterization, an image, a thought, you know, he's, he's infinitely, um, appealing. You will, you can go back and back to him anytime. And so I, I had this three, year uh, um, sort of idyll really of being alone in my flat, um, Writing the book, having having the works to hand, and having a really good time.
1: Well, I know you mentioned it before, Robert, and uh, I think people who listen to the New Books Network will want to know how are you. You've you've recovered, but how are you?
2: I'm well. I'm I, I'm pretty pretty good. I mean, I don't, I can't, I can't play tennis or squash, or you know, is not. Uh, I can't run a mile. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I, 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 have a good life, and uh, I can do all the things I want to do, and I feel well. And I, sw- I, sw- one thing I do do is I swim. Uh, I swim a lot, and uh, so I, this, this this book was not not quite significantly written in, in, in underwater, because <laughs> um, I would I'd find that I was res- I sort things out at the moment when I'm swimming. I sort things out the things that I can't figure out on on paper. I, I, I work out in the pool
1: are there things that you learned about yourself when when you were all done with this book?
2: Uh, I'm sure there are things um but it's too soon to say what they are, but I I I, I it was a very, it was like a, a moment of self-education. Um and it, it made it, it, it it's sharpened up my sense of how the English language works on the page, I think.
1: Uh, yes, <laughs> that's true, uh, and, and it works in so many varied ways. Um, this is not... mm. go ahead.
2: I was going to say that you know, obviously, when you write about Shakespeare, you're you're very aware that you're writing. It's like it's like g entering a vast cathedral of achievement. I mean, it's just a massive structure, and the people you encounter in the in the shadows of the, of the cathedral are. Not only Shakespeare himself, but these great writers—Keats, you know, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Johnson, Alexander—you po- know a whole range of English giants and American giants too—and um, he makes you makes you very humble when you when you encounter this, this 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 grandeur.
1: You bring up something that is, I think, universal to to many writers, including myself. Was when I when I wrote my book, I was first kind of naive, and but as time went on, I found myself drawn. My book is in the 18th century, but I found myself so drawn to the 18th century and more oh. and more research and going and going, oh. And, oh. and I get a feel for what life must have been like at that moment. Oh. Oh. And I'm trying to – do you have a better feel now – for the late 1590s and the early 17th century, than you did before your book.
2: Yeah, I, I, I can also I want, want to make one point, which is that his life, you know, the, the hinge of of, of the, the turn of the century between 1590 and 1600s. The 1600s, it's a great moment of change in English and and European life. When you go back into his childhood and early years. You're in a world of superstition, sorcery, witchcraft, horrible violence. It's a really, it's a really primitive world, and there's no medicine. There's no, there's no, there's no proper economy. There's no capitalism, really. There's no medicine. There's very little law. It's it's wild. It's savage. It's very, very. It's kind of unknowable, and and also enthralling. Um, but when you get when you turn the page into the sixteen hundred, you've got James. Suddenly, it becomes. It's, you, you can imagine stepping into a room with James, and the you know the furniture the, the windows have glass. Um, the houses, well, the houses still exist. There are very few Tudor buildings left, but there are lots of Jacobean buildings. And we, if, if you look at a, a Jacobean portrait, um, and, the, and the and the setting of a Jacobean portrait, it's a world which is sort of semi-familiar, and. So the modern world begins in the second half of Shakespeare's career, but the first half you're in you're in you're in a very primitive place. It's very dark, very strange. So, but I find that the, the juxtaposition of the medieval and the modern very appealing.
1: As do I, and, I, and you've given me something to think about um, that that turn of the century. Um. From the 16th to the 17th century, mm, mm. Um, it's so a real
2: shift. It's a real shift, um,
1: massive, and, and we get um, America mentioned in one of Shakespeare's yeah. plays.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: Do you wish to remind the audience about that?
2: Well, I think the the the, the extraordinary thing about Shakespeare's afterlife, and let's let's take his out. You know, he, let's remind ourselves that he died in 1616. The first folio was the first collection of his work was published at the same time as the Pilgrim Fathers arrived in roughly speaking. the Pilgrim Fathers arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts 1620 didn't they? And the first folio was published in 1623. So America and Shakespeare's work are contemporaneous. And I think there's a very strong case for saying it's America more than Britain actually, which makes his afterlife. I mean the uh, the found, your founding fathers Jefferson Adams and so forth were what trem- uh, even Washington were great Shakespeare they they would and we know Lincoln used to wander about the White House reciting Shakespeare. Um, the American political class have had a fascination with Shakespeare from the very beginning, and I think they played a very important role in popularizing Shakespeare for for America. And there's a famous quote from the French writer. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, from the, in the 1830s when he's travelling around America and he notes that in every cabin in America, every log cabin, you'll always find a Shakespeare play or a, or a, or a collection of Shakespeare Shakespeare's lines. And I think there are many that wouldn't have been true in England. Um, there's something about Shakespeare in American life which has kept him going um, and has popularised him. It's a, it's a very mysterious process, but I think, strangely, America has been crucial in the, as I say, in his afterlife. Yeah,
1: I think in America we would have put Shakespeare right next to the Bible.
2: Yeah, 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 indeed. Uh, this, um, is,
1: this is Joe Kralder, and I'm talking with Robert McCrum uh, about his book, Shakespearean, uh, on life and language in times of, disrupt- of disruption. You're listening to the New Books Network. And we're just about done, Robert. What's next for you?
2: Uh, so it's the question every writer dreads. And if I knew, I would, probably wouldn't tell you. So, um, <laughs> uh, but the short answer is I have no idea. Um, I th- I always feel, and this is not an often original thought; someone else said this. But you know, you when you when you write a book, you drain the well. You really drain everything out, and you just you just you, you empty yourself completely. And this was a very draining experience. And the well is now empty and it has to fill up again. And it'll take a few months or years for that to happen. And when that's finished, when that process is over, there'll be another one. But for the moment, I'm very happy um, in the bottom of my well and there's no water in it. <laughs> um, that's all I can say, really. I don't. Who knows, um, books come from all... When I went to, to see the Shakespeare in the park in 2017, I had no idea. This book would be the fruit of it, but not only was did I write a book about the experience, but so did Shapiro, and he wrote a book called Shakespeare in a Divided America, which is a terrific book. It came out earlier this year or last year, I think. Um, so that the, so there we were sitting side by side watching this show, and then and from that came these two books, and I'm very happy to have done mine. It was it was, a, it was I can't tell you what a pl- what pleasure it was to write it.
1: Well, it was a pleasure to read, and as a historian, I got to tell you that folks uh we may be living in shakespearean times but this too shall pass uh and i i really thank you for this interview uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you
2: ah uh, thank you joe um, i'm very appreciative and i'm glad we managed to overcome the technological glitches to, to get to this point <laughs>